the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 10, Fielding Plans. The members of the Agriculture Committee filed into Town Hall's parlor meeting room. One by one, they took their seats in silence around the long folding table. The town meeting had adjourned after the reading of a list of the winter's dead. No one was in much of a mood for conversation after that. By and large, the people of Cheshire had weathered the winter reasonably well, considering the lack of power and fuel. Nonetheless, the grid failure and winter had taken a toll on the elderly, the chronically ill, and the unprepared. From the downcast eyes of everyone at the meeting, it was safe to bet that everyone knew someone who had died. Jeff Landers broke the silence by clearing his throat. <clears throat> well, I don't think this committee needs the formality of Robert's rules. How about we just get started? The committee didn't vote on a chairman, but as chair of the selectmen, everyone assumed Jeff was the committee chair, too. Many heads nodded without looking up. Uh, right, so, our group has been tasked with coming up with a plan to raise enough crops so next winter won't be another hunger season like we just had. Jeff's words were not enough to prime the discussion pump. So, I guess I'll ask if anyone has an idea to start us off. Uh, anyone? I'll go first, I suppose, said Charles. His mother sat beside him. We need to grow as much grain as possible. I suggest that we have all the big open fields in town plowed for corn, or wheat, or rye. Even the hay fields? asked Arthur Emulari. He had a large horse farm atop Senator Hill. Most of my fields are good hay. Be a crime to plow that under. It's taken years to get that good sweet grass and timothy to grow in. Yeah, said another man from northern Cheshire. The animals have got to eat, too. If all the good hay fields are turned over to corn, uh, what'll the horses and cattle eat? Charles looked frustrated by the objections to what he thought was an obvious good suggestion. Uh, per Charles's point, said Martin, my question is, can we grow enough corn to get everyone through the winter? Well, we sure as heck can't count on any outside aid, grumbled Mike Wilder. This past winter, we got a little FEMA stuff and that other single truckload, but you can bet that isn't happening again. Several of the people around the table nodded solemnly. Right, said Charles. We have to provide for ourselves. That's why I suggested we plant as much grain as possible. And have no hay, muttered Arthur as he folded his arms. My question has two parts. Martin pulled a small notebook from his shirt pocket. Do we, or you, the farmers in Cheshire, have the skills to successfully grow such crops? If so, do we have enough land to grow it on? My wife and I were doing some calculating the other day, figuring out how much corn a person would need to get through a winter and into the next growing season. Okay, how much? asked Red Colliff. Well, not so fast, said Martin. Let me walk you through our figuring to see if you agree with how we got to our numbers. Go on, coaxed Jeff. 
We figured, as a starting point, each person needs two ears of corn per day. A person's got to eat more than just corn, said Red. Besides, the dairy should still be making milk, if you don't plow under all the hay. Right, continued Martin. We're assuming people will have some other things to eat, but if this past winter is any guide, people won't have much of any other things. There'll be some garden vegetables and some meat, cheese, and milk, like Red said, but people need the carbs for energy. Everyone's working manual labor. Carbs are no longer the dietary villain that they were when we led our sedentary lifestyles. We figured two years a day as a minimum. Two years a con a day for how long? asked Jeff. Well, we were thinking six months, said Martin. From harvest in October to March, when things start getting green again. More would be better, of course, but that's where we started. As I was saying, two ears a day times 180 days means 360 ears per person. That sounds like a lot when you put it that way, said Jeff. But then, you're talking half a year's worth of food. Ah, uh, how much land does it take to grow 360 years of corn? Charles asked. Martin studied his notepad. Well, crop yields are always listed in bushels. The amount in the books varied, 40 to 60 years per bushel. So we thought 45 years per bushel was conservative. 360 divided by 45 would be 8 bushels. Each person would need 8 bushels of corn to survive next winter. That's bushels, not acres, Red pointed out. Well, I remember Clyde saying he got 150 bushels per acre on his fields last year. Red scoffed. Ha, yeah, maybe. Uh, when he could use all his machinery and fertilizers. That ain't happening this time. No, agreed Martin. It took some digging, but I found one encyclopedia reference to average corn harvests in 1866. Farmers were getting an average of 26 bushels per acre, which the article said, was little changed over the previous 70 years. 1866 was before motorized farm equipment. Everything was horse-drawn. That's probably closer to what we're going to get. The farmers in 1866 knew what they were doing, objected Mike. Ain't no one around here farmed with horses. Speak for yourself, said Red with a sniff. My father was still farming with his two teams until the early 50s. I learned a thing or two more than you figured. He poked at the table with his big index finger to punctuate each word. Martin interrupted the budding argument with more calculations. Uh, assuming that we can do about 25 or so bushels per acre, that means each acre could feed three people for the winter. Now, that doesn't sound very promising, said Charles. Jeff, uh, how many people are in Cheshire now? Jeff stared at the table, his brow furrowed. Ah, we had 4,700 at the last census. Call it 4,900 or something, when all this hit the fan. We took a partial survey last month. Looks like over half evacuated for someplace else. Softy mass hole now, Mike, interrupted Jeff. Ah, we don't need name-calling. We need solutions. You know I'm right, Mike pounded the table. Jeff sighed. It was often more expedient to let Mike's rants run their course. Mike duplicated Red's table-poking gesture. Cheshire grew up the past twenty years. 
mostly from incoming panty wastes from Mass, coming up here expecting, uh, no, demanding city services for just about everything. Oh, Jeff, don't give me that look. You can remember how many times they'd come to selectman meetings demanding that we build sidewalks on their road and streetlights at their driveways and bring in city water and sewer from Manchester or something so that they wouldn't have to worry about well pumps and septic tanks. Spoiled suburban pansies. Mike leaned back in his chair, arms folded across his chest. Sensing that the rant was over, Jeff continued after a sigh. There were more losses than just the evacuees. You all heard me reading off the list upstairs. We lost some good people to untreated medical conditions, freezing to death, starvation, and some being uncareful with fire, or too trusting of strangers. Some have just disappeared, and we have no idea where they are or if they are alive or what. But we've also got a bunch of people come into town from outside, refugees. Martin nodded. His household had grown from just him and Margaret to ten, all from outside Cheshire. It would have been eleven if Susan was still with them. He was glad that Walter heard that she was alive and well. He wondered what she was so busy with that she couldn't return. Did he want her to return too much? So, best guess is that we've got around 2,500, said Jeff, assuming that stays constant over the summer. Martin got his head back in the game. Huh? Uh, oh, uh, 2,500. Uh, that, divided by three people per acre, means... Martin stalled while he did the math longhand. 833 acres of corn, uh, plus or minus. Does Cheshire have 833 acres of farmland? Drew? Jeff turned to Drew Haddock, the quiet selectman, with a penchant for statistics. He scratched his ear while he thought. Well, last I looked, we had 850 acres on the books as farmland, but I know that not all of it is actually cleared fields. And precious little of that was usually planted in corn, said Arthur. Most of what I've seen is hay. Terry and Scott across the road from me do a little corn for their couple of head of beef cattle, but most of their fields are hay. Down the road, the knights have hay. Like I said, I'd hate to see all the good hayfields tilled under for corn. Cows have got to eat. Horses got to eat. Particularly when we're working them every day. Can't just turn every open field into corn. Right. So, said Martin, that brings me to an idea I wanted to float by you all. A while back, I was thinking of digging up my front yard for more garden space to grow beans. Then I noticed how Robert and Jen's horses liked to graze on my lawn when they stopped by. That got me to wondering if my lawn still had value as a pasture. Could we repurpose all the suburban-style lawns into a patchwork pasture? There are a lot of lawns in the developments in the northeast quarter of town. Ah, lawn grass is okay for grazing, said Arthur, but the cattle all live in the south or west end of town. Well, I've been thinking about that, too, said Martin. Charles has a plan to revive some of the old farm equipment that's sitting around town. Some of it could be powered by a small tractor with a gasifier and a PTO. Eh, don't forget about horse-drawn, Mrs. Hendricks interjected. Eh, my late husband was restoring a sickle bar mower to sell uh, on eBay, a 1901 John Deere. 
Charles and Tyler think they can finish the project to where it'll work again, like new. She sat back and beamed as she patted the back of her son's hand. Martin continued. I'm sure there's more old equipment around, like Mrs. Hendricks's mower. We need to locate them and get them fixed up. With a horse-drawn mower, someone could travel around and cut the lawns that we allow to grow tall. There's got to be a hundred acres or more of just lawns in town. All eyes shifted to Drew. His mind was sorting through numbers. Well, over twelve hundred homes listed. Zoning requires one-acre minimums in most areas. Cut that in half, say, for uh, structures and other non-lawn conditions, and yes, you might be looking at five hundred acres of lawn. That's all fine and dandy, objected Arthur. But those five hundred acres are scattered all over the place. What are you figuring to do? Have cattle drives? Well, actually I was, said Martin. Just yesterday I was herding a lost cow back to the dairy, right, Red? That got me to thinking that maybe the cattle in town could be walked around, make a daily loop to the lawn pastures. We could put our young people to work doing the herding. My wife herded cattle on her family's farm when she was young. They were too poor for fencing, so the daughters herded the cows. This could be useful work for our otherwise not-all-that-strong youth. Yards too far away for practical pasturing could be let go to hay and mowed. Hey, guys, Chief Berg leaned in through the doorway. Sorry to interrupt, but could I ask you to watch the prisoner while I go help Sergeant McCutcheon? We're short-staffed. I need to help load the dead exes into the truck. Sure, said Mike. He sat at the end of the table nearest the door, so he had a view into the hallway. Yeah, we can watch him. Great, said Berg. I've got him cuffed to the stair railing. Thanks. Back in a few. The door creaked and slammed shut. Now, there's a fly in your cow herding ointment, Mike pointed to the hallway. Do you really think we can have our young girls walking around herding cattle when there are bloodthirsty killers and rapists like him in the woods? I'm not a killer or a rapist, objected the unseen man, handcuffed to the banister. Ah, shut up, bellowed Mike. They caught you with those other exes who tried to kill the dairy cows. You're just another worthless criminal like them. No, I'm not, the young man protested. I've had enough of this. Mike pushed his chair back so quickly that it fell over backward. He strode out into the hallway. A loud smack was followed by a yelp. You came here to rape, kill, or steal, just like all the others, thundered Mike. No, I didn't. I had no choice said the man between sniffles. Bah! said Mike. He walked back into the meeting room, rubbing his knuckles. I'm not a criminal, said the man. I didn't do anything wrong. They forced me to go with those guys. Yeah, right, snorted Mike as he picked up his chair. You were in that camp because you're a stinking rotten criminal. No, I'm not, objected the young man. All right, Mike pushed his chair back again. This time I'm going to lay him out cold and shut him up. Well, now hold on a sec, said Martin. Maybe we should hear what he has to say. Oh, now what? Are you feeling sorry for this mass trash? That's what they're doing, you know, shipping all their trash up here. No, I'm not getting all soft, said Martin. He's the only live raider I've come across. Chief wanted to take one of those exes alive earlier, remember? 
He wanted to question him. This raider isn't an X, but aren't you curious to know how and why they're sending raiders up here? I told you, said Mike. They're dumping all their scum off on us. But it's not random, said Martin. Some of them, like that guy's group and the ones with the tracking device, came up here with specific plans. Yeah, he's got a point, said Jeff. Yeah, let's ask him about that before Sergeant McCutcheon takes him away. Everyone got up from the table and formed a circle around the young man, handcuffed to the stair railing. A trail of blood ran from his nose and chin. He had shaggy brown hair with leaf bits embedded in the snarls. His gray hoodie was dirty with dried mud and blood on the shoulder where he had wiped his nose. His faded jeans had crusted mud from the knees down. Oh, great, he muttered. Now you're all going to have a go at me? Oh, big brave dudes, aren't you? Whacking on a guy tied to a post. Ah, we're not here to beat you, said Jeff. Yeah, but we will if you lip off, growled Mike. Martin addressed the young man, trying to sound less belligerent. We want to ask you about why your group came up here. The young man looked from face to face. Martin could see in his expression that he wanted to be tough and defiant, stand his ground. Yet his shoulders fell. He leaned back against the thick newel post and closed his eyes. Uh, whatever. My name's Martin. What's yours? Martin figured that exchanging names would make each of them more of a person and less of an opponent. Carson. He seemed to relax a little, though still wary. From the map we found, I'm guessing you guys came from that camp just across the Merrimack River? Yeah. That's where they ship all of their worst scum, blurted out Mike. Everyone knows that. It is, but I'm not one of them, said Carson with defiance. I didn't belong there. They threw me in there because... He looked at the floor. Yeah, it's complicated. But I never hurt anyone or stole anything. Why did your group come up here? Why, Cheshire? asked Red. I had no idea until the last minute. Carson shook his head. Oh, right. How could you not know? demanded Mike. I didn't know because they didn't tell me anything. Diesel had the map. He knew what the plan was. He never said. All he did say was, do what they told me, or they'd kill me. So I did what they told me. Even with the map, I wasn't sure he knew what he was doing. We got lost a couple of times. The three of them argued about what the paper said. So, you didn't know they were planning to kill a bunch of our cows? Asked Red. Well, not until we were coming up through the woods from our Four Rocks campsite. Only when we got to the fence and they gave me a big knife did they tell me their plan. Killing cows sounded totally whacked out, and I figured whoever owned the cows would have guns. Oh, I wanted nothing to do with it. When they jumped the fence and ran for the barn, I ran the other way and hid in the woods. Raymond found him in the root hole of a blown-over pine, Red informed the others. We are guessing that killing our cows was supposed to deprive us of food, said Jeff. Carson shrugged. Oh, your guess is as good as mine. Hey, is this some kind of a plea deal? If I tell you what I know, will you not send me back? Well, that's not for us to decide, said Jeff. Your fate is in Sergeant McCutcheon's hands now. I can say that being cooperative works in your favor, better than clamming up. Carson frowned at the lack of a deal and his lack of bargaining position. Oh, you tell him I was cooperative, okay? You be sure and tell him. Ah, we will, 
Uh, after you kill the cows, uh, then what? Uh, take pictures as proof and then hightail it back over the border. Why would you risk your life to do all of this? Carson scoffed. My life was at risk as soon as they put me in with Diesel. Bosses promised him women if we got the job done. Ha! said Mike. Told you he's a rapist. That's all they are. I didn't say I did this to get women, protested Carson. That's just what they said. Might not be any women. For all I know, they'd have killed us when we got back. No witnesses. I wouldn't put it past them. Fewer mouths to feed, too. Uh, you said they put you in with Diesel and the others, said Martin. Who are they? Uh, camp bosses. Every now and then, they picked out groups and handed out target assignments. I wasn't even supposed to be on a team. Diesel's group was short one, and I happened to be scraping paint off the storehouse wall near the exercise yard. They saw me, so I was in. Uh, but how did they know where my cows were? asked Red. Uh, nobody said, said Carson. But the other guys in the camp, they talk, you know. They say the bosses get target intel from some guy they have up here. He finds targets and tells the feds who tell the bosses. Ha! You see? bellowed Mike. Quinn! That proves it! I told you! Yeah, he didn't say Quinn, cautioned Jeff. Uh, did they give that guy a name? I never heard him use that name, said Carson. I think his name was Bagram. A couple of times the bosses said they got word from Bagram, for what that's worth. And did you hear what the other assignments were? Jeff asked. I overheard a group next to Diesel's talking about a place that started with a nut or a knot. I didn't hear it clearly. They never said it again. Nottingham? Guess Drew? North of Epping? Bit of a hike for raiders. Uh, might be Nutfield, Jeff said to Mike and Drew. Hey, uh, that second one sounds kind of like it, said Carson. The other team had something about a warehouse in Exeter. Well, we'd better tell Sergeant McCutcheon about these, said Jeff. Drew, could you go let him know? These attacks haven't happened yet. They might be able to stop them. Why should we believe anything this scum has to say? asked Mike. Well, why would I make any of it up? asked Carson. There's nothing in it for me. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. Kutch pushed through the front door. Jeff, Mike, Drew, and the rest of the committee gathered around him to tell of the potential raids on Nutfield and Exeter. Each had a theory on possible targets. This left Martin, time alone, beside Carson. So, Carson, began Martin, you sounded pretty adamant that you didn't belong in the criminal camp. How come? Martin was curious about the origins of the raiders. Well, what do you care? Well, I don't know. You didn't seem like the hard hardened criminal type. Well, if you must know, it's because I got blamed for a riot I didn't start because my landlord was ticked off that I didn't vote for him. Um, could you unpack that a bit? Martin asked. Let's start with the landlord. Yeah, fat jerk. He wanted to be our neighborhood's block organizer. Kind of a block boss. He fancied himself as the next Obama. You know, rise from the streets to great power. But he's got zero charisma and couldn't form a complete sentence. I just couldn't vote for that. The whole canton was electing leadership 
director, committee chairs, ward bosses, stuff like that. They made a lot of hype about the cantons preserving democracy against the forces of evil and seeking the will of the people and how they're all in it together, you know. They had posters. They made us listen to speeches. When voting day came, the ballot only had one name for each office. I had never heard of most of them. What? asked Martin. Only one name? How is that actually voting? Oh, well, it isn't, of course. But nobody seemed surprised. It's not that different from how things were before the crisis. So everyone just seemed to roll with it. I mean, mass has been under one-party rule for a long time. Even before this, people weren't really picking their leaders. They were rubber-stamping whoever the party wanted in the chair. Now the power people gave up pretending they were contests. Just, here's the guy, say yes. Then they can claim they're elected by the people. Uh, well, what's the point? Martin asked. Why go to all the bother? Carson scoffed. Exactly. What a joke, I thought. So I left my ballot blank. Like you said, what's the point? Except that my landlord wanted to be elected block organizer with a unanimous vote from the people in the neighborhood. I screwed that up with my blank ballot. So I was on his blacklist. They knew it was you? Oh, yeah. That caught me off guard at first, but not so much after I thought about it. They have everything locked down pretty tight. They're all about control. They say it's for our safety. The clubs keep people in line. So, yeah, they knew how people voted, or didn't. Seems extreme to be thrown into a criminal camp because you didn't vote in an uncontested ballot. Oh, no, not that. Not voting didn't actually break a rule, although they've probably changed that by now. I was convicted of inciting a riot and harming the welfare of the people. That's what they said, anyhow. It was all totally fabricated, said Carson. Well, mostly. There was a riot, but I didn't incite anything. My landlord got me assigned to a heavy labor crew as payback for not voting for him. They had some of those big spools of cable, and we were pulling wire from the power station to the casino hotel. A lot of leadership types had moved in there with their families. Rumor was they wanted hot showers. Engineers had been working on restoring that big wind generator and got it running. All I said was that it was too bad that we weren't running wire across the river to the hospital instead. A couple of hotheads on the crew got all cranked off about showers for leadership while the hospital stayed dark. They got the rest of the crew whipped up chanting about fairness for the people or something. I backed away. I knew it was trouble. You don't accuse leadership of being unfair. Oh, that'll bring the clubs down on you fast. Maybe even get you killed. That was the riot you started? asked Martin. Riot, yes. Me starting it? No, said Carson. The clubs showed up and started cracking skulls. They liked doing that. A bit too much, if you know what I mean. They hauled the whole crew in. No one was talking. Guys in trouble know that you have to stay silent. Everything you say is twisted against you. My landlord came down and told him that I started it. The next day, I got a hearing. They called it a hearing, even though I wasn't allowed to speak. Must have been a half a dozen people I'd never seen before came in and said they heard me inciting the others to riot, or I stole bread, which I didn't, or threatened to kill the governor, which was a lie. Everyone knows those hearings are a farce, not a trial. It must help them all sleep at night, thinking that they were fair. 
I figured they'd send me to one of the reconstruction camps. Weren't you already in a reconstruction camp with the wiring project? asked Martin. Oh, no, that was a work crew. I still lived in the apartment with the other five guys. Reconstruction camps are really re-education camps. They reconstruct the person, you see. I figured the worst case was having to sit through a few weeks of lectures on sacrificing for the public good or put on your Canton happy hat. From what I'd heard, you just had to parrot back whatever they told you and you could be out in a couple of weeks. But no, continued Carson. That night, I was sleeping on the floor in a prisoner camp. Hmm, Martin rubbed his chin. He had imagined that criminal camps were filled with the irredeemable criminals from the cantons. He hadn't thought that there could be political prisoners, too. I thought I could maybe lay low, you know, stay under the radar of both the bosses and the tribe, get by. Though I had no idea for how long. The tribe? Uh, that's what the guys with the X's on their heads called themselves. It was like a private club. They were all strutting swagger about it, like they were such hot stuff. Okay, young man, said Jeff. Sergeant McCutcheon has agreed to take you to Portsmouth instead of throwing you over the border. You can tell them what you know, and they might go easy on you. Carson sagged against the banister in relief. Oh, thank God. Don't thank him just yet said Kutch as he unlocked the handcuffs. No guarantees in Portsmouth. A guardsman ushered Carson out of the door, his wrists recuffed together behind his back. I'm telling you, Sergeant, Mike said. This kid proves what I've been saying all along. Quinn is behind all the raiders. We've got to find him and stop him before more people are killed. The governor would like nothing more, said Kutch. He's had an arrest warrant out for him since November. We're seriously short-handed, so we haven't been able to search for him. We pick up encrypted radio messages now and then that we figure are his, but they're too short for triangulating. Well, he must be somewhere central, said Jeff, not up north of the notch or on the coast. I heard reports of engine noises, but no headlights, at night, from people in Goffstown and Milford, Eppin. He and his people must be within easy driving range. We've heard of those reports, too, said Kutch. Several around Concord. New Hampshire isn't a big state, but it's still got a lot of territory to search when you don't have many guys and limited fuel. And... Guys have other duties to do, like patrolling for raiders. Finding Quinn needs to be a priority, said Mike. Spring planting and successful crops are critical to everyone. He's right about that, said Martin. People are going to have to be working the land if we're going to grow enough food for next winter. They can't tend crops if they're hiding in fear of raiders. That's exactly what Quinn wants, said Mike. He doesn't have to hit any place hard. Just keep everyone afraid. He still wants to starve us into accepting the Fed boot on our necks in exchange for a little Fed food. Now, Mike, cautioned Jeff with a barely perceptible eye roll. Mike had become increasingly obsessed over Quinn. Ah, we don't know that it's Quinn. Inwardly, Martin agreed with Mike that Quinn was nothing but trouble and that Quinn was the only plausible common denominator to the raiders' attacks and firebomb planes, 
Nevertheless, they had precious little evidence that it actually was Quinn behind it all. What if it was someone else, some other group? Carson said the camp bosses said their informant's name was Bagram, Martin added. Wait, what? Kutch did a double take. Actually, his exact words were that they got word from Bagram, interjected Drew, uh, just to be precise. Bagram, Kutch mused to himself. That's the major airfield in Afghanistan. So, a code name doesn't mean much, said Jeff. Maybe, maybe not, muttered Kutch. His eyes darted back and forth as he thought. Could be symbolic. What if it's not the man, but the place? What if he's at the airport? Manchester Airport? asked Jeff. That's been abandoned since that relief flight burned to the ground in the middle of the runway. Stupid crowds, grumbled Mike. Couldn't wait for the plane to even stop to offload. Had to rush in and get theirs before it was gone. I tell you, people can be animals. Well, the airport makes some sense, said Drew. Tall barbed wire perimeter fence, wide clear zones, the ideal watchtower. It's far enough from the other settled areas that activities between the buildings could go unnoticed. I heard one of the Manchester street gangs had moved in, said Martin. They chase people away. Say the airport is theirs. Trevor thinks it might be his old gang, the Azules. They were losing turf to the kings. Kutch nodded. We check out that airport now and then. We don't see much activity. But we have seen gang members patrolling inside the fence. Why don't you try to get them out of there? asked Mike. Not enough of us to chase gangs out of every nook and cranny, said Kutch. They didn't seem to be bothering any of the locals, just hanging out in there. With the raiders, we've had plenty of other fish to fry. That gang could just be hired by Quinn, Mike raised his voice. I'll bet he's in there, hiding in the buildings, using the gang as his hired guns. Plenty of space for him and his men. Probably fuel stores he's been using for his night recon trips. For all we know, those planes we sometimes hear at night could be doing airdrops of supplies for Quinn. It's obvious, Sergeant. He's in there. Obvious, maybe, said Kutch. But we'd have to pull almost all of our patrols to have enough men to take a fortified compound. That would put too many civilians at risk. So use us, exclaimed Mike. We all helped you take bad as, right? We could do that again. Now hold on there, Mike, said Jeff. You can't just go volunteering everyone to satisfy one of your conspiracy theories. It's not a conspiracy theory. He's in there. I can feel it. We need to put a stop to his troublemaking. Well, even if he's in there, and I'm not saying that he is, said Jeff, removing Quinn won't put a stop to the Raiders. The feds can, and probably will, keep sending them over the border. I know, conceded Mike, but they'll be blind. They'll go after whatever target's opportunity they can stumble across. Well, that's not much comfort for the people along the border in Salem, Plastow, or Hudson, said Drew. Yeah, folks down that way have hardened their compounds, said Red, banded together into larger groups so they can outnumber the raiding parties. 
Actually, having the raiders less focused would make them easier to intercept, said Kutch. More blundering around, looking for things to steal. Well, I'd be willing to go, said Martin. It's worth the effort, in case Mike's right. Of course I'm right, said Mike. He's got to be in there. There, count me in, said Red, as long as I don't have to run. Of course we're in, said Charles. Tyler wouldn't miss it, I'm sure. Oh, I don't know, said Mrs. Hendricks. I don't think I could be a sniper again. Well, what do you think, Sergeant? asked Martin. If you had the Cheshire Irregulars, would you have enough manpower? Kutch rubbed his jaw as he stared into the middle distance. Well, let me take this back to the Major. He's not keen on civilian militias, but you guys did pretty good at bad ass. Maybe if you all took some of the support rules. Uh, now you're talking, said Mike. How about that? Another whole chapter. Back when I did my survey about what topics you, the listeners, were curious about, some of you were curious about what was going on inside the cantons. Carson's backstory gives you an idea. In podcast news, I was perusing some of the demographic stats and was a bit surprised at which countries you listeners live in. The English-speaking countries of Canada, the UK, and Australia have always figured prominently in the volume of downloads. What surprised me was that Poland came in third. Thanks, all you listeners in Poland. Another surprise was Brazil. You guys came in right under Australia. Hi there, all you listeners in Brazil. And if any of you aren't too shy, I'd like to hear how you found the Siege podcast. You can contact me at my email, mick at mick-roland.com. I'd also like to thank John and Anne for the coffees this week. I am very grateful for your support. Thanks for listening, wherever you are.